The Stream of Time. Hello, and welcome back to the history podcast, The Stream of Time. I'm your history host, Elliot the Historian. The man we are going to discuss the next couple episodes is a complicated man. He's been called a conqueror, an explorer, even a god. Other ambitious people in history have used his life as something as a template against which to aspire. But it's because of this, and many reasons, that we should be careful when we study this man. I've held you in suspense for too long. The man we are going to discuss today is Alexander III of Macedon, better known to the Western world as Alexander the Great. To the Persians who fell under his rule when he defeated Darius III at the Battle of Gagamela, he was known as Iskander the Accursed. He was a brilliant military commander, traveled thousands of miles from Greece to modern-day Pakistan, defeated armies everywhere he went, formed the largest kingdom the world had ever seen at the time, and died of some sort of sickness on the way home at the young age of 33, after only 13 years on the throne, most of it spent on campaign. After that, his generals grabbed whatever land they could and split his empire, generally resulting in a lower quality of life for everyone except the aristocracy for the next few hundred years, at least. We're going to get in a lot more detail next episode about what I just quickly summed up. But I put that all together deliberately because I wanted to show how complicated this single man was and why we should always avoid simple hero worship of someone who is interesting and instead look at each instance with as much scrutiny and analysis as possible. In the same way we saw a different side to the Athenian statesman Pericles last episode, we are going to take a closer look at Alexander from three different standpoints. The historical context that allowed someone like Alexander to rise, the journey and conquests of Alexander, and the legacy he left. So let's start with the historical context. And the best place to start is where we finished the last episode, the end of the 5th century BC. In 401 BC, 10,000 Greek mercenary soldiers marched out under the employ of one of the Persian claimants to the throne, Cyrus the Younger. Cyrus, or Kurush as he was known to the Persians, was trying to wrest control of the throne from his brother Artaxerxes II. They fought at the Battle of Kunaxa, and while Cyrus was killed, the Greek mercenaries had crushed Persian opposition so totally that not only were there no Greek casualties, only one Greek was even wounded. So Artaxerxes retained his throne, but this left both the Greeks and the Persians in an uncomfortable position. The Greeks were stuck far from home, with little food and no support whatsoever. The Persians, for their part, had a very large and obviously very powerful army in their midst that was effectively without a leader. One of the satraps, sort of like a governor, of Artaxerxes, offered to point the Greeks in the direction towards home with food, and invited all of the Greek officers to a feast. At the feast, he had them imprisoned, presented to the king, and executed. It's not clear what he expected to happen to the large Greek force remaining, but all the Greeks did was to elect new officers. One of these elected officers was a man named Xenophon, from whom we have this story commonly called the March of the Ten Thousand, although Xenophon titled it Anabasis, which translates to something like going up country, or marching up country, or going inland. After a series of tribulations, the soldiers made it back to friendly territory in Trapezius, modern-day Trebizond in northeastern Turkey. Xenophon conveys the joy and relief of the Greeks as he tells us they yell, Thalata! Thalata! Or, The Sea! The Sea! 
The story is so good that in the 20th century, it was novelized into a modern setting about a Coney Island gang trying to make it home after getting stuck in hostile territory, which was eventually turned into the 1979 movie The Warriors. While Anabasis makes for a fun story, there was a very clear lesson to the Greeks, and that was that the Persians were not the powerhouse that they were a century before, during the Persian Wars. Anabasis planted the seed of an idea in the Greek world, and that idea was that former Greek areas could be reclaimed from what appeared to be a much weaker Persian empire. And yet, it was still over half a century before something like this was seriously planned and considered, and that was by Alexander's father, Philip II. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. The problem was, and if you've listened to any of the past few episodes about the stream of time, you probably already know this, the various Greek city-states fought a lot. The Peloponnesian War solved nothing. In fact, less than a decade after the end of the war, Sparta and Athens were already at war again in the Corinthian War from 395 to 386 BC. But while the Peloponnesian War didn't solve anything, things did change. Sparta had a chance to impose its political influence immediately after the end of the war, and while the installment of the 30 tyrants ended quickly and in disaster in Athens, in the city of Syracuse on the island of Sicily, the man Sparta helped to power, Dionysius, managed to reign until his death in 367 BC. Dionysius was what the 15th century Italian philosopher Machiavelli would have considered a strong man. He consolidated his power in Syracuse, and with that attempted to expand his rule by trying to conquer neighboring territory on Sicily, as well as the Italian peninsula. Of course, Athens had already set a precedent of empire in the 5th century, but with Dionysius we first get to really see a despotic ruler with imperial designs on his mind. I'm bringing up Dionysius because it was his style of rule and designs that would provide a template for Philip II of Macedon, Alexander's father. And Sparta, for its part, had its own designs after the Peloponnesian War as it installed a series of rulers across Greek areas that would be sympathetic or even subservient to Sparta. The Spartan king Agesilaus II, who ruled until his death at the age of 84 in 361, made multiple attempts to take back territory from the Persians in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. So you have these various powers in the area trying to consolidate power. You have strong men thirsting for power, and you also have the Greek city-states typically fighting amongst each other and each gaining varying degrees of success. For example, while Sparta defeated Athens and Corinth in the Corinthian War, Sparta was checked in 371 when a Spartan army was soundly defeated by an army from Thebes at the Battle of Leuctra. By now you might have noticed something missing from the discussion, and that's Macedon. In fact, I've been talking about the Greeks for several episodes and barely talked about the Macedonians. Macedon was a kingdom north of ancient Greece, roughly coterminal with modern-day Macedonia. While they were culturally related to the Greeks, they were still separate, the Greeks didn't consider the Macedonians Greeks, and probably the Macedonians didn't consider themselves Greek for that matter. There is some evidence that the Macedonian language was different enough from Greek that Greek listeners wouldn't be able to understand Macedonian. Although the kingdom was founded in the 7th century, it wasn't a major player in the area until the later half of the 5th century BC. There are a few reasons for this. For one, Macedon was under Persian control for part of the 6th and 5th centuries BC. Another reason Macedon didn't get deeply involved was that Macedon wasn't quite unified, but rather dotted with several tribes. 
The kings of Macedon often spent much of their effort and resources on maintaining control of their own kingdom. Even worse, these efforts were too often undermined by bloody Macedonian politics. Macedonian kings had a tendency to get violently assassinated. Just looking at the 5th and 4th centuries, the list of kings assassinated is shocking. You have Alcaidus II, killed 448 BC, Archelaus I, killed 399 BC, Archelaus II, killed 393 BC. Probably, it's possible this one was an accident. Amentus II, also killed 393 BC. Pausanias, also killed 393 BC. And Alexander the Great's father, Philip II, killed in 336 BC. We'll talk about Philip's assassination in a bit, but for now the point is that, in a little over a century, six Macedonian kings were assassinated, and that's a lot. Still, while Macedon didn't expand, it also didn't contract, and it started becoming more of a player on the Greek stage in the second half of the 5th century. During the Peloponnesian War, Macedon got involved in Greek politics and picked sides. And when I say sides, I literally mean sides. Under the Macedonian king Perdiccas II, Macedon switched sides between the Spartans and Athenians multiple times, even breaking treaties almost immediately after they were brokered. One thing Macedon had going for it was that it had a lot of timber, a resource that was becoming more scarce in Greece by the later half of the 5th century as much of the timber had been used for ships. This put Macedon in an important bargaining position throughout the war. As I stated a moment ago, Macedon didn't contract, and while it had skirmishes here and there with neighboring kingdoms and tribes over the first half of the 4th century, it seems to have stabilized its kingdom enough to pave the way for Alexander's father, Philip II. Philip is a fascinating character in himself, and in order to understand Alexander, we need to take some time to look at Philip in more depth. Philip was born in 382 BC, and as the third son of Amentus III, he was a somewhat unlikely candidate to be king. In fact, he spent several years of his youth as a hostage, first to the Illyrians, a tribe to the west of Macedon, and later to the Greek city of Thebes. This probably worked to his advantage, as Philip received a Greek education in Thebes. It allowed him to understand what made the Greeks tick. Macedonian politics being what it was, Philip's brother Alexander II was assassinated, which left his other older brother, Perdiccas III. In 360, Perdiccas III was killed in battle on an expedition against the Illyrians, which left his infant son Amentus IV on the throne. This was Philip's opportunity, and within a year, in 359 BC, Philip had usurped the throne from the infant king. But Philip took control of a kingdom that had some problems. There were the aforementioned Illyrians. After their victory against Philip's brother, they pushed further into Macedonian territory. On the eastern side of Macedon, the tribes of the Paeonians and Thracians were wreaking havoc. And on the south, at the coast, an army from Athens had landed, as Macedon had long had contentions with Athens over cities such as Amphipolis on the northern coast of Greece. Simply put, Philip used a combination of diplomacy and military acumen to push these external threats back. He had a tendency to marry princesses of adjoining kingdoms, and while he married an Illyrian princess in 359, it didn't stop him from invading Illyria. It also didn't stop him from marrying Olympias, a princess from another adjoining kingdom, Epirus, in 357 BC. He seems to have understood the usefulness of political marriage. But he was also very busy in terms of conquering neighbors and strategic positions. In 356, the year Alexander the Great was born to Olympias, Philip took the town of Crenidus and changed the name to Philippi. This was an important town as it had gold mines that would fund his later campaigns. 
Philip was very successful in his military campaigns. He was clearly a shrewd military mind. He also had a highly competent staff with generals who would later end up on campaign with his son, Alexander. But it wasn't just military genius that allowed Philip to be so successful. It was the fact that he reformed the Macedonian military. Remember, he was a hostage in the Greek city of Thebes and learned quite a bit about the Greeks during his time there. His reforms were partially to make the Macedonian army closer to the Greek style, but he also took it further. The Greek phalanx was a formation of soldiers, usually a square several lines deep. The idea was to keep the formation solid and push back an opposing force. Philip trained his armies in the phalanx formation and took it a step further. He equipped his phalanxes with long spears called sarissas. The spears were up to 20 feet long, and different layers of the phalanx square would hold the spears at different angles. The idea was that the phalanx could not only be a strong defensive formation, but with the spears could keep an enemy at a distance and soften an enemy before full contact is even made. The sarissas held at an angle could also provide a form of cover from ranged weapons such as spears or arrows. The Macedonian phalanx was crucial, but not the only reform Philip had. The other important reform Philip had was his companion cavalry. The companion cavalry was a group of probably upper-class Macedonians that were wealthy enough to own their own horses. Now, cavalry, which is to say soldiers on horses, was used typically during this time as a method for soldiers to get to the battle faster. Ride the horse, get to battle, get off the horse, start fighting. Philip's companion cavalry was somewhat unique for the time in that he used the cavalry as shock troops. The companion cavalry were highly trained and would often stay in formations such as a wedge and strike a shocking blow to soften enemy infantry enough for friendly infantry to have an easier time. In fact, the tactic has often been called the hammer and anvil tactic, where the companion cavalry is a hammer slamming enemy infantry against the anvil of the Macedonian phalanx. This is a tactic Alexander would use to great effect. I'm going into so much detail about Philip because it's important to understand that this is the context and environment that created someone like Alexander the Great. Alexander didn't come out of nowhere. Alexander was a prince, and as he would grow up, he would watch his father conquer almost all of Macedon's neighbors. The Illyrians to the north and west, the Thracians to the east, and most importantly, the Greeks to the south. I had mentioned that Macedon already had problems with Athens when Philip ascended to the throne. Philip only got further involved in Greek politics as he took a side in the Third Sacred War, which ran from 356 to 346 BC. I'm not going to go into detail on the war, but what's relevant here is that Philip was able to get deeper and deeper into Greek politics and gain Greek territory by his involvement. By the end of the war, Macedon was stronger and bigger in territory, while the Greek states had been weakened by the war. And while some of the Greek states had initially been happy to have Macedon's help in enforcing peace by the end of the Third Sacred War, it was also becoming clear that a deal had been made with the devil. Effectively, Philip had become a de facto leader of Greece. Mostly. Neither Philip nor Alexander seemed to have been interested in subjugating the Spartans. In fact, there's an amusing anecdote about this. Philip apparently sent a message to the Spartans saying, If I win this war, you will be slaves forever. To which the Spartans characteristically replied with a single word, If. The Greeks, unsurprisingly, weren't comfortable with the idea of Philip being in control of Greece, and tensions began to mount. By 339, Philip had started to move south to pacify Greece. 
This move was opposed by an army composed of an alliance of city-states, including Athens and Thebes. The armies finally met in 338, and Philip soundly defeated a combined army at the Battle of Chironea, named after the close-by village of Chironea. The Battle of Chironea is notable for two reasons. For one, this solidified Macedonian control over Greece. After this, the Macedonians wouldn't see any serious opposition from the Greeks. But it's also important because an 18-year-old Alexander controlled part of Philip's army and participated in the battle. This battle no doubt taught Alexander tactics as well as hardened him for future campaigns. Philip created the League of Corinth in 337, a collection of city-states, and like Athens did with the Athenian Delian League a century before, used it as a justification for his rule over the component city-states. But he also wanted the Greeks' help for the real prize he had his eye on for decades, and that was an invasion of Persian territory. Remember Anabasis, the march up country? Philip certainly did. The idea of a waning Persian empire was attractive to a man who clearly had machinations for building empire. He had already pacified all of Macedon's neighbors. Now he could make the case for liberating Greek cities, and I use liberating in quotes, that had been under Persian rule basically taking back Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, to incorporate into his personal empire. He began preparations in 336 and sent both soldiers and a general to Asia Minor. And then, in October 336, he was murdered, stabbed to death by one of his bodyguards. Now, even ancient historians don't agree on why Philip was murdered, and reasons given range from an offense against a bodyguard to a plot by Alexander the Great himself to ensure his place on the throne. So I'm not going to even bother guessing what the true reason was. What's important is that Alexander was now the king, and rather than sit on his laurels, the 20-year-old new king took his father's legacy and took it so much further than his father could have imagined. Literally, Alexander ended up in places that the Greeks had never even heard of, moving ever further east. And that's a good place to stop. This episode, we talked about the historical context that created Alexander. Next episode, we get to see Alexander himself. Thanks for listening, and see you next time on The Stream of Time.